0: Welcome to Reading Between the Reels.
1: I'm Matt Leader, And I'm Craig Dickinson. Today on the show, we have some special audio for you from a Zoom session that one of my classes did with Brian Young, uh, who's been, who's returning to the show. We had him on before Brian Young, of course, uh, from the Full of Sith podcast and from Huffington Post and writes for StarWars.com, Star Wars Insider, uh, several places. It's very easy to find Brian Young and he's uh, he's a Star Wars expert. And so he had some really interesting things to say to, uh, to my students, especially about whether or not Darth, uh, there's a Darth Jar Jar. Uh, so if, if you know anything about Brian, you know, once you get him started talking about Jar Jar, he's got quite a bit to say. So I hope you enjoyed this, uh, this episode. Morning, Brian. Good morning. How's it going? Not bad. Not bad at all. Hey, thanks for jumping in early today no no problem appreciate it so uh we're gonna do this kind of uh convention style like they're lined up and then i've got they're gonna come up here i just worked out better that way uh to come up to the mic and then they'll see you and you'll see them and then uh they'll just cycle through and ask as many questions as they can if that works for you
0: yeah it works for me
1: perfect awesome okay here's our first one how did Darth Vader go to the bathroom
0: uh well you know they they saw him uh Well, I guess you saw a little bit uh, in Empire how they like he's got that thing where he takes his mask off and everything in this hyperbaric chamber in subsequent things in like Kenobi or in Rogue One. You've seen him sort of in that back to tank and stuff. Uh, And uh, they he's got robots to take his armor off. So I'm assuming they do that when he goes to the bathroom, too. The better question is, how does Darth Maul go to the bathroom? I'm still working on that one. I can't figure that one out.
1: What do you think is most significant about Tatooine?
0: Uh, I think the thing for me, the thing about Tatooine that's most significant is the fact that it's not significant, right? That that people of importance can come from anywhere. Uh, and Tatooine, you know, if there's a bright center to the universe, that's the planet that's farthest from. So, really, anybody can make a difference from anywhere and I think that's what makes Tatooine important is that it's that that stand in for literally anywhere. Okay, thank you.
1: How does Darth Vader eat food?
0: Uh again like he can take his mask off and stuff like and 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 do that. You know, we've seen like I said in Rogue One and in um a little bit in empire strikes back where they have his helmet off like he he can take his helmet off and and eat yeah so like like we would he eats actually if you think about it a little bit somehow i don't know how they did it but in empire he has that feast ready when he traps han and leia oh
1: yeah okay thank you
0: a lot of questions about Darth Vader's bodily functions.
1: <laughs> well, they're middle schoolers.
0: Yeah. Uh, so in in Return of the Jedi, why does the Emperor want Darth Vader to bring Luke to him? So, if you notice, you you got, you all watched all six movies, right? Or the the six original movies? Yeah. So, um, Palpatine basically goes through and replaces his older apprentices with new apprentices all the time. Right. Like, so like Darth Maul goes away, he gets Darth Tyrannus, Darth Tyrannus he's using as a manipulation tool to get Vader because he thinks Vader's going to be the better apprentice. And you notice he's never very broken up about any of these, uh, you know, losing these apprentices. And he honestly believes that Luke is going to be a better apprentice than Vader because Luke is still like a whole person and not like half machine. So he wants Vader to bring Luke to him so he can turn him to the dark side and make him his new apprentice and replace Vader. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Thank you. No problem. So in Return of the Jedi... Why does Luke surrender to the Imperials? Uh, Luke surrenders to the Imperials because he knows that they'll bring him to Vader and he has to confront Vader. Um, oh, Yoda tells him that right before his death is that in order for him to completely be a Jedi, he has to confront Vader and surrendering to the Imperials is the easiest way to get to Vader. And you'll notice in that scene where uh the the imperial officer hands luke's lightsaber over to vader on the gantry uh to the at uh he says that uh like you could get the impression that luke actually mind tricked him into taking him to vader and that there's no one else on the planet but the officers like no there clearly must be someone else on endor um but yeah that was really luke a trying to save the mission on endor and save his friends um because he he tells that to leia he says i'm endangering the group and our mission earlier and then when he tells leia on Endor just before he leaves like the longer he stays there the more danger he puts them in so he surrenders because that's that's what he's got to do okay thank you why is padme continuously in danger um she likes to be in danger no i don't know padme is the sort of uh woman of action who really um, is underestimated. I think that's one of the most interesting things about her character, especially in Phantom Menace. They underestimate her and think that she's just gonna roll over and sign all of those treaties, and she doesn't. She goes back to save her people. In Attack of the Clones, she continually puts herself in those positions because she's someone who wants to do something. She wants to take direct action. For as much of a politician as she is, direct action is something that's really important to her. And so she's always in danger because she's always putting herself there because she's not waiting for someone else to take care of things. She's going to do it herself. Okay, thank you. I really love Padme. Mae why does princess leah's accent change um so the way carrie fisher tells it i've had the the i had the the great pleasure of getting to interview her once and she says that like her accent where she's dealing with the imperials in the first movie was very much her her retcon of that the way she explained that to herself was that she was making fun of them with the accent right um that she was just sort of like um yeah just being a little bit sarcastic with the with the accent uh in front of in front of Tarkin and you notice those are really the scenes the only scenes she has most of that accent in um so it was just her being a brat is what she said but there's I'm sure there's all sorts of realities of production where she tried it and then it didn't really work and it sort of slowly faded away and she doesn't have an accent anymore, but her reasoning was that she was making fun of the Imperials. Okay, thank you. What is the significance of the lightsaber? Why not a blaster? In uh, to for uh, the Jedi in general, or for like the specific saber? Um, there's a lot of mythological underpinnings about uh, swords, right? Like George Lucas was patterning the Jedi after samurai right and so samurai would traditionally carry swords not guns Um, the other thing is there's a lot of mythology around King Arthur and Excalibur I mean how many of you know about the sword and the stone right and the the sword that you'd pull out to become king of England or, or whatever right there's a birthright inherent in the idea of passing the sword down and uh, Obi-Wan does that with Luke in A New Hope. Uh, it carries on further in 7, 8, and 9, those those ties to Excalibur from a mythological standpoint. Um, also, swords are much more defensive weapons, right? And I think they fit the Jedi ethos in that way a little bit better, where um, a blaster is inherently always offensive. It's always something you're going to shoot at someone else but a lightsaber has more uses than that. It can deflect those, those uh, blaster bolts and defle- uh, defend people because you can kind of create a barrier around yourself when you're using it. You can use it to cut through things. So I think they're much more utilitarian and they're much more in line with the Jedi philosophy. Thank okay. you. Does Lando redeem himself as a friend? Would you trust him Why or why not? Um, yeah, no, I think Lando does. If you listen to Billy D. Williams talk about it, he says that, like, he didn't have a choice, right? Like, Lando, like, Vader and his Stooges arrived before Han and Leia did, right? Like, Boba Fett got the call in that they were... That was where they were heading before Han and Leia even got there. And I think the moment where you have to know, going back and looking at it, that Lando was trying his best to get them to go away is when the cloud cars start opening fire on them and try to get them to like scare them away. That was Lando trying to go like, no, 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 like this is bad news. Mm -hmm. And Lando the whole time was trying really hard to keep them away, to do his best to negotiate on their behalf, right? Like the best deal he could get, like Darth Vader shows up in your city and he wants to take your best friend and his friends, you're going to negotiate as best you can. And Lando is a smooth talker. I mean, that's his whole thing. And so he thought the deal of, okay, we'll give up Han, but Leia and Chewbacca will get to stay with him was as good of a deal as he could get. And when he realized he was continually double-crossed, he worked to free Han and, or free Leia and Chewie. And then he put himself in harm's way in Jabba's palace to rescue Han. And then gave himself to the rebellion. Yeah, I, I totally think he he redeemed himself. I think he did the best he could under the circumstances he had. No matter what, even from the beginning, that it wasn't his intention. It's not like Lando called the Imperials and said, "Like, hey, I've got Han Solo here." He tried to keep them away as best he could. Thank you. Um, what do you think of the first meeting of Anakin and Padme? um i I really like it i think it's really adorable personally um she has no idea how the rest of the galaxy works and her meeting a young slave and not knowing how any of that uh like there's this there's this fondness and curiosity there i don't know like it's a fun scene phantom menace is one of my favorites so like all of the scenes are my favorite but that's um I don't know. I, I, I love, there's some stuff in clone wars actually that kind of touches on the angels of Diego and things like that. And um, I don't know. I like that scene. It's, it's, I don't know. It's just adorable. I don't know. Jake Lloyd is just, he acts like every eight year old kid I've ever known.
1: <laughs> Thank you. So, so Brian, I, I have to ask, Uh, You mentioned how much you love Phantom Menace, and these guys have never heard the story. Could you just, for their benefit, tell them how many times you saw Phantom Menace in the theater?
0: Uh, Over the course of like, so, okay, let let me put a caveat out here, okay? When Phantom Menace came out, I was working at a movie theater, and I was the manager. So I could arrange it so that I could get my employees cleaning all their stuff, I could get all the money counted and go in and start Phantom Menace and then watch it on the clock, right? Because I had to stay there and watch the building until the last movie had finished anyway. So I just organized the schedule so Phantom Menace would start last, late enough for me to do all that stuff. So 77, that's the answer you're looking for, 77. Um,
1: Awesome.
0: Yeah. What ultimately causes... Anakin to lose to Obi-Wan? His arrogance. Um, I think it's his, his, uh, Um, it, it, there's interest. It's interesting because you've got these intercuts between Obi-Wan and Anakin fighting and Palpatine and Yoda fighting. And there's a line Palpatine says to Yoda, but I think it actually applies to Anakin more. And he says, your arrogance blinds you. And, uh, I think Anakin really truly believes that he's more powerful than Obi-Wan. If you go back to Attack of the Clones, there's two moments that sort of inform that. One, there's that moment in Padme's apartment where Anakin and Padme are talking about how... um, you know, how he's really ahead of Obi-Wan or that he feels like Obi-Wan is holding him back. And then there's another line where Obi-Wan and Yoda and Mace Windu are talking and they're talking about how the Jedi have, some of the Jedi have become arrogant. And Yoda tries to warn Obi-Wan and says, maybe we're all sort of arrogant here, but Obi-Wan is really concerned about Anakin. And it's Anakin's arrogance that he thinks he's bigger and better and more powerful than he really is, um, which is something that's pretty common with, Young people, generally. <laughs> um, so I think that's how Obi-Wan is able to do it because Obi-Wan really is the master. Obi-Wan studied longer. Obi-Wan has taught him everything he knows. If you notice in that fight in Revenge of the Sith, they're practically mirrors of each other as they're fighting. And um, yeah, no, it's, it's very much... Uh, unless you're talking about A New Hope, and, and, or no, I mean, that's, Anakin gets defeated by Obi-Wan there. So yeah, I think it's just Anakin's arrogance. Thank you. Um, So
1: why do you think that before Anakin warned the Jedi Council, why do you think they couldn't find out who Darth Sidious was?
0: Uh, The dark side clouds everything. Um, Well, here's the thing. Like, they didn't want to believe it, right? It's something like, you see this in politics all the time where people don't want to believe the truth in front of them because it's more convenient not to, right? Um, in Attack of the Clones, uh, Darth Tyrannus, uh, Count Dooku, tells Obi-Wan straight up, like, Darth Sidious is in control of both sides. Of the, or he's in control. He was pulling the strings for the Trade Federation. There's a Sith Lord in the Senate. And Obi-Wan and, and Yoda said, like, in that last scene, they're like, eh, it doesn't feel right. And they just assumed since Dooku had turned to the dark side, he must have been lying to confuse them. And because the presence of the dark side being so strong and near them clouded their vision and their judgment, they they didn't think it was possible until Anakin came and reported it. And uh, we saw how that how well that turned out. Thank you. What causes Vader to break away from Dark Side, the Dark Side, and control and control the Emperor? Um, I think the start of it is him realizing that his kids were alive. His whole journey to the Dark Side was like anguish and anger and loss, and when he started realizing that he hadn't lost everything that he thought he had, that maybe his kid was still alive, um, that that sort of starts bringing him back. If you notice, like his character changes in really interesting ways in A New Hope, Empire, and Jedi. In A New Hope, he's like very much a bloodthirsty killer and he's very single-minded. In Empire, he's much more um, out of control. Like he's acting out, maybe tantrums even, right? Because he's killing Imperial officers. He's really just out of control. And in Return of the Jedi, he's much more somber and subdued the Vader of a new hope or empire couldn't have had that conversation with Luke about who Anakin Skywalker was. Um, they couldn't have done that without fighting because he started down that path. So I really think it was the love of Padme. It was the reminder of his family, the reminder of the things that he'd given up to be on the dark side that started him down that path back toward the light. Um There's some really interesting comics, too. If you want to check out the comics, um, there's some Darth Vader comics where um, he... that that explain when he discovers that Luke Skywalker is, like, his kid. And then how he sends Dr. Afra, who's a really great character, down to investigate, down to Naboo, to, like, even just, like, interrogate the Undertaker to find out how this could have been possible. The Undertaker who took care of Padme in her death and things like that. So there's some really great comics that sort of explore those ins and outs and those moments through there that you could totally check out. But yeah, I think it's his family. His family brought him back. Good, thank you.
1: Why doesn't Han believe in the force?
0: Um... Well, Han believes in himself, really. It's it's hard to believe in the... Han had a really hard, scrappy life, and the only thing he could rely on was himself. And no one really taught him about the Force, and he grew up in an era where, I mean, he was about 10 when Order 66 happened, and he was already sort of an orphan on the streets where he would have no access to teachings about the Force or anything. So he wouldn't be exposed to it from a religious or a cultural standpoint. And he grew up learning to believe only in himself, which is what makes it so much more fascinating when you get to episode seven and he's the one who's teaching Ray about the force. Uh, it's really fascinating to see him make those, that that character change from the complete disbeliever to, uh, you know, the person who's, who's, passing on the information to the next generation but it's really hard to deny the force when your best friend is very clearly using it <laughs> right like in return of the jedi han pretty clearly watches luke raise 3po up over his head and you know murder all of jabba's henchmen and blow up jabba's sail barge and really um you know it it's it's it, you, can't, you can only witness so much and not believe it still. Okay, thank you. Um, is there a specific place where you get your lightsaber in Star Wars? Yeah, so actually there's some really great um, episodes of the Clone Wars that deal with this. There's this thing that Padawans go through called the Gathering. And that's where they, um, it's before they've been chosen as Padawans. It's while they're still younglings, uh, like the ones that Anakin murdered. <laughs> Um, and basically like master Yoda and maybe some other Jedi take them on this very old spaceship to a planet called Ilum. And there they kind of go on a a sort of a quest through the forest, through the caves of Ilum to find a Kyber crystal that really speaks to them. And then they, when they get the Kyber crystal, they come back to the ship and there's a droid there named Hu Yong and Hu Yong has been with the Jedi for something like 900 years Um, And in Clone Wars, he's actually voiced by David Tennant, who played the 10th Doctor in Doctor Who. Uh, He won an Emmy for that performance, actually. But Hu Yang has in his memory banks all of the different designs that every Jedi has ever made for their lightsabers over those centuries and guides the Padawans into using the Force to build their lightsabers uh, based on what the the dictates of their their emotions and their feelings and, and what their destiny sort of guides them to. Um, and, and that's kind of how, that's kind of how Jedi do that. Um, Sith don't really get that chance. Sith, uh, in order to get those red lightsaber crystals, they have to steal those from Jedi or from other people or get their kyber crystals in some other way the color of your crystal is very in tune with your relationship with the force and the crystal itself. And so Jedi and, and the Kyra crystal have their own relationship. That's why Sith blades are always red because um, they have to bend the crystal to their will against the crystal's will. And so it's, they, they call it bleeding the crystal. And so it's, it's sort of like they're hurting the crystal and creating that red, that red blade. Um, so, I realize I go way deeper into these than you're probably interested in. That's perfect. Thank you. Why is that Emperor obsessed with Luke taking Darth Vader's place? I mean, it's it's like uh, somebody obsessed with any shiny new toy, right? Like, why do people like... Why does no one like playing a PlayStation when they can play a PlayStation 5, right? They want the new model. And... I think Palpatine feels very stuck with Vader, although he went through the grand plan with Vader. Um, Vader losing most of his limbs and needing to be rebuilt for Palpatine um, really um, wasn't ideal for Palpatine. But the other thing for, for Darth Sidious, I guess, is that Sith, like Palpatine's obsessed with learning how to live forever, and the thing that kills the Sith, if you go back and listen to his speech about Darth Plagueis the Wise, it's always the apprentice that kills the master. So if Palpatine keeps killing his apprentices and getting new ones, none of those apprentices are going to be able to be powerful enough to destroy him because he doesn't let them live long enough to. Um, he doesn't let them live long enough to develop the. Power they would need to destroy it. Thank you. Um, what are your thoughts on the Star Wars holiday special? Many. Um, it's terrible, but it's fun. Um, it's a really interesting artifact of the time. Um, you can watch the cartoon that they had on the Star Wars holiday special, like on Disney Plus. Like they've put that on there now. So the which was actually the first appearance of Boba Fett um, on on screen um it's bad it's not good um the lego holiday special is really fun though but it references that i don't know you got to watch it once um yeah you got to watch it once it's it's not good though like you've got to watch it with a group of friends that are really interested in a star wars and be laughing a lot at each other's jokes because there are no jokes on the holiday special that are worth laughing at so you've got to make your own all right, thank you. Um, so what caused Luke to finally give into his anger? Um, well, which time? Um, Luke's anger is really predicated on protecting the ones he loves, just like his father, right? Um, like Anakin, the thing that forced Anakin to finally give into the dark side was the fact that he thought he was going to be able to save his friends from a fate, or to save his wife from a fate of certain death. Right, that's what motivated him. When Luke gives into his anger in Return of the Jedi, it's only after Vader threatens to turn Leia to the dark side, and that's why I think watching. Did did you all watch them in four, five, one, two, three, six order? Yes. Um, I think that's why that order works so well is because you're able to tap into the cycles of Anakin and Luke, kind of going on the same path. And the potential for, for Luke's turning, um, never feels more apparent than that moment. And and then when he finally backs up and looks at his hand and realizes that, that he's turning into his father, that's when he throws his lightsaber away. Um, he came back in a way his dad couldn't. And his dad is the one who, you know, cut, cut Mace Windu's arm off instead in that same sort of decision point. Um, but yeah, it's the same thing as his dad. It's that attachment to his loved ones and wanting to protect them more than anything um, flies them into a rage. Oh, thank you. Why, did, why is the film set a long time ago? Um, so George Lucas talked about how the reason he opened the films a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away was because he wanted people to feel like these were a fairy tale and that was his that was his science fiction version of once upon a time in a in a land far away you know what i mean like the way you would start a fairy tale is very much the way he wanted to start star wars so that was that was the reasoning behind that thank you it, it's also sort of on that last note really fast it's important to note that star wars is not actually a science fiction it's a it's a fantasy right star wars meets all the beats of fantasy stories not science fiction so starting it out like a fairy tale really helps reinforce that idea that it's a fantasy not a sci-fi um
1: why is mace wendy's lightsaber purple
0: um because samuel L. jackson asked for that <laughs> um so there's there's two answers there's the answer that that samuel L. jackson really loves the color purple and asked George Lucas and George Lucas agreed to it. And then in the universe, everybody tried to figure out like, well, how do we do that? Um, Why do we do that? And why would a lightsaber be a different color? Especially a lightsaber when you sort of blend red and blue, you get more purple. And so um, there were some thoughts that Mace Windu sort of teetered on that edge of the dark side, maybe a little bit closer than the others. And that was sort of why he got that color. And if you notice, his, his stances are much more aggressive. In some of the old expanded universe, they talked about his fighting style being very close to the dark side. Um, and so Mace Windu's power really came from being able to ride that edge. And uh, so that's why it's purple. Those are the two reasons may uh samuel l jackson really really wanted a purple lightsaber and convinced george lucas to do it and mace windu teeters toward the dark side thanks
1: um are all stormtroopers humans
0: under the suit or are they like different species um i don't think we've seen a stormtrooper that's been an alien species i think they're all human um at least to this point there are very i mean the empire is very xenophobic. There's there's definitely a lot of um, cultural commentary in the idea that the empire is not into aliens. They're very like humans first, right? Like, yeah. um, and so there are very few aliens that serve in the imperial like navy or in the stormtrooper corps or whoever. Um, you know, I think Thrawn might be the biggest exception to that. Um, who you could watch in Rebels and is really a terrific character. Um, but he had he was extraordinary and there were reasons to bring him into that. But that, that xenophobia and that fear of aliens uh, is something that, that um, I think was very purposeful as a political statement on the part of George Lucas and the filmmakers.
1: Okay, thank you.
0: Like the bad guys always fear stuff that, that, that is different.
1: So my history teacher has a theory that Jar Jar Binks is a is a Sith Lord. What do you think about that?
0: Did Craig put you up to this? Did did Mr. Texas put you up to this? Did you? Nah, no, I think hi-
1: that's my history teacher uh- did.
0: Okay. Um I think it's silly. Your history teacher is wrong, and you can tell him that. Um, so the thing is, is that the whole story around Jar Jar is the fact that he's very kind and loyal, but clumsy and no one wants him around despite how loyal and clumsy he is. And it's his loyalty and his friendship that gets exploited over the movies that, that, um, he's the, the, the most pure and kindest character in star Wars. So the idea that he's like this Sith Lord is really, um, it really arrived as this like internet theory for people who didn't really like or understand Jar Jar to make themselves feel better about Jar Jar existing in star Wars. Um, But the thing about Jar Jar is that he, the lessons that Jar Jar teaches Qui-Gon carry on so that if you don't have Jar Jar and Phantom Menace, you don't get the Ewoks saving the rebellion against the empire and return of the Jedi Qui-Gon picks up Jar Jar, even though he like, I don't think you realize what you got into when you asked this question. Um, um, Your teacher did, Um, but uh, the thing about like when Qui-Gon finds Jar Jar, no one wants Jar Jar. Jar Jar has been banished because he was clumsy. No one wants him around because he's obnoxious and no one sees any inherent worth in him. And there's this motif in fairy tales and mythology where if you're nice to someone that you don't have to be nice to, they're going to give you the power that you need to win at the end of the day. Cause that's the, all these fairy tales and myths are supposed to teach us is to be nice to people, even when we, there's no gain for it. And Qui-Gon's the only person who sees this in Phantom Menace. He's the only person who sees any inherent worth in Jar Jar just for being a person and saving his life. So he takes Jar Jar along. Obi-Wan is not happy about this. He calls him a pathetic life form. Um, The Naboo aren't necessarily thrilled because they don't necessarily like the Gungans. The Gungans are sort of like, "Eh, whatever, just take him. We don't want him either. But it's Qui-Gon bringing him along and seeing that worth in him despite that stuff despite him being annoying, um, is what brings the Naboo and the Gungans together to defeat the Trade Federation. Now Qui-Gon dies, and Palpatine is looking around trying to figure out how his grand plan went wrong, and he realized it was, it was the befriending the people that you underestimated. So he's the one who manipulates Jar Jar into giving him control of the Grand Army of the Republic. Now, Yoda, fast forward to Yoda, he feels like a failure. He wants to know where the Jedi went wrong. He goes to exile on Dagobah after Order 66 and everything. And who is it that's talking to him this whole time, teaching him where he went wrong? It's Qui-Gon. So is it any surprise? Who is it that Yoda's acting like when Luke shows up on Dagobah? He's acting like Jar Jar. He's annoying, he's obnoxious, and he's trying to make himself appear as though he has no nothing to offer luke and luke fails this test luke gets angry luke yells at yoda uh for being like essentially useless and yoda finds danger in this because this is the thing that that the jedi failed at so luke finally is able to learn this lesson in return of the jedi When they get captured by Ewoks and Han, I mean, like, let's be honest, Han could have blasted all of those Ewoks. No, no problem. But Luke stays his hand and says, no, let's see how this plays out. There's nothing that could have stopped the Ewoks or stopped that group of commandos Han and a full-blown Jedi master from like annihilating all of them. But that's not really the Jedi way. So because Luke learned this lesson from Yoda from Qui-Gon from Jar Jar, they're able to unite with the Ewoks. And that's like the secret uh, you know, weapon that they use to defeat the Empire. And so, really, the moral of the story for all of for from Jar Jar to the Ewoks is that you need to be kind to what other people might see or lower life forms, because you never know when they're going to be able to save the day. And there's no reason to be mean to them. So, no, Jar Jar is not a Sith lord. He teaches compassion through the entire saga. All right, thank you. So,
1: Brian, I want to respect your time. Do you have time for just a couple more questions?
0: Yeah, we got time for a couple more.
1: Okay.
0: I'm the one going long. He, he talk me up. Talk to me about Jar Jar. It's like putting a quarter in, you know, like.
1: In the Phantom Menace, why is the movie called the Phantom Menace?
0: So the Phantom Menace is is really it's Palpatine, right? Like it's this idea that like. Um, someone is behind the someone is is behind the scenes pulling the strings as a villain, and they just don't know who it is. Um, so that's that's sort of thematically why it's called that. Um, the other reason it's called that is because it's just a, a cool sounding title that fits with those 1930s Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon serials that George Lucas was such a fan of. Um, all of them kind of fit that that pattern of those 30 serials titles. But the Phantom Menace is really about Palpatine being that phantom, that ghost in the shadows, pulling the strings and putting evil out there with with menace. OK, thank you. How come Obi Wan changes his first name to Ben, but he doesn't change his last name? Um, I think I that's a good question. Um. I don't think it matters on Tatooine what, what his last name is. And Obi-Wan reminds him too much of the Jedi. Maybe Kenobi Kenobi seems to be his family name and Obi-Wan seems to be his Jedi name. There's a lot of Jedi you'll see with that, that uh, double name with the hyphen, like Qui-Gon, his master. And um, so that, that could be very well. Why? Um, Yeah, it's, it's, that's something you'd have to ask George Lucas and he'd probably go, yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> thank you.
1: All right, I just want to say thank you again, Brian, so much for joining us today. I think we all had a pretty good time. Great time listening to you and, and getting a chance to, to talk Star Wars.
0: Oh, yeah. Thank you. Anytime. Well, next year, at least.
1: Yes, definitely. But
0: I hope everybody enjoyed the movies and listen to me ramble.
1: Thank Perfect. You, Brian. Thank you. Yeah. Have a great day, my friend.
0: Thank you. You too. So as we close, we just want to say thank you so much for listening. If you would like to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Email us at readingbetweenreels at gmail.com or use the SpeakPipe app on our website.
1: And if you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on your favorite podcast catcher. We'd love to hear your feedback. It really helps us get the word out about the podcast. And if you haven't yet, please join our Facebook group. It's a safe place to share your thoughts and discuss all things related to movies.